I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Bishop Cherry Van, who's the Bishop of Monmouth. Cherry, if I may be so yeah, bold. Yeah, may indeed. Thank you. Tell us where you're from originally. I was born in what was, at that time, uh, a little village just south of Leicester called Whetstone. So I'm a, a Midlander, and I was there until I left school at 18, uh, when I went down to London to study music at the Royal College of Music. Right. So in your childhood, what mm. sort of family did you have? What did your parents do? Uh, my dad was a music teacher taught me, actually, a part of my education. My mum was uh, the local primary school secretary. And it was uh, a little village that was expanding all the time, really. It's now a suburb of, of Leicester. Um, but, yeah, it was a very happy childhood. Um, we were a church-going family. I say that, actually, but when I was about seven or eight, my father stopped going to church. He had been church organist for, for a long, long time. Uh, and stopped going to church and, and has never went back. Why um, I think he felt... It wasn't about belief so much. I think he felt that you could believe in God and lead a Christian life without going to church. He was a very strong introvert, so all the social things that usually go with church life he he wasn't interested in. And I think he just felt that he was being more authentic to who he was by not going. My mum was a, a pillar of the church, very active, a church warden. And from our birth, we were both taken to church, and it was very much part of our childhood. So at any time during your childhood, did you have any sense of doubt about faith? Yes. Not while I was in Whetstone. It was when I left to go to music college. And you know how it is when you're a child in a, in a little village. You, you only know one thing, really. And uh, when I went to London, of course, I mixed with all kinds of music students, people in the Christian Union that I became part of, and came up against people who've, who believe different things, whose experience of church was very different to mine, and that was a very useful learning for me because it helped me to see that the church was not just what I had understood from St Peter's Church Whetstone but was actually much much broader and of course there were international students as well at the music college so I got a real exposure to the breadth and I went through some some doubts yes uh, I became I was also a critical thinker I was also asking questions in fact, I can remember as a child, I've not told anybody this actually, but I remember as a child reading the Bible from the beginning and thinking, this doesn't make sense, because I think Adam and Eve had two sons. So how does that work then? So I can remember always having a thinking, critical mind right from being a child. I think also light came before the sun was created. <laughs> yes. So I, I learnt that the Bible wasn't a, a book to be taken literally. It's a book of stories of faith. And that exposure at music college really broadened my mind. And I, I became interested in faith and religion in a very different way. You didn't obviously initially become a cleric. No. So when you'd done your stint at music college, mm. what did you do? I worked as a piano teacher. So I studied piano and violin at the Royal College of Music. 
wanted originally to be a concert pianist, but uh, again, once I got to music college and realised, you know, the standard of playing of other students, I realised that that was probably not where I was going to be headed. So I did what a lot of musicians do when they leave music college, and I taught. I taught piano, and that's how I kept body and soul together. Was that in school? It was. It was, well, I had some private pupils, but I also taught in a, in a prep school down in Hampshire. So I'd make a, a journey down to Hampshire from London uh, once a week, stay overnight, and teach a little group of, of children piano there. It wasn't really me. I'm not a natural teacher, at least I'm not a natural piano teacher. But it was a job, and it was using the music I'd trained for. It was whilst I was doing that, really, that I started to get this sense of of call to ordination and part of that was actually the chaplain that was at music college who was a woman and you'll remember perhaps that um, women in the mid 80s weren't even allowed to be ordained deacon never mind ordained priest so she was on a journey as well and she became ordained deacon whilst I was still at music college and that was all very much a part of my own sense of call. Um, So you're getting a a call to ordination mm. what was, would you say was your sense of God? I mean, there are various interpretations where some people uh, are very literal and, of course, you know, there is a contrast, isn't there, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Mm-hmm. What was your perception of, of what God was? It's difficult to think back to that time, but I think God for me has always been a mystery. So as a child, very connected with gardens and landscapes and mountains I very much understood God as as a a, a creator something that was was beyond our understanding but was sufficiently close to us for us to have a relationship with God but that sense of awe and otherness and mystery is still very much part of my spirituality actually I think anybody who claims to know what or who God is in, in, in God's entirety doesn't understand what God is because if we can understand God then God's not God for me God has to be beyond our understanding but nevertheless being a life force that we can have relationship with and we learn that primarily through the life of Jesus who we believe not just points us to God but was God in human form so when you look at somebody like uh, Jesus you see what God is like in human form and that's why Christians pattern or seek to pattern their lives on Jesus, because we believe that's the way God uh, intended us to be. And that's how we become the best we can be. We can become what God created us to be in all, that, in all the fullness of that. Obviously, there's a, a very sophisticated theology which has developed over many centuries. Mm. And <clears throat> sometimes there have been ideas which have been predominant and sometimes they've um, they've gone off the scene. There have been mm-hmm. heresies yeah. which have been held up by uh, many people at the time as being the truth. Yeah. And we know historically that there were, uh, as it were, conferences that were held mm-hmm. in order to determine what was part of the canon and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. One could say that it was a lot easier to believe in God before the scientific age. Mm. But once the scientific age came along, Mm. where many things in the uh, universe have been subject to scientific explanation, Mm. that the 
the purpose of God, as it were, has gone. How do you react to that kind of argument? I think we are always, no matter how much we learn about the universe and how it works, or the human anatomy and how that works, there is always the question, why? Why are we here? Why, why are we like this? Why, why has the world, the universe indeed, unfolded as, as it has? And that's a question that science can't answer. And it's a question that religion, I believe, helps us to get to grips with. We'll never understand it. Uh, as I said, um, we'll never know the ultimate why. But I believe that faith can help us make sense of it in a, in a different way, in that, in that why way. And the why for Christians is because God is a creative God and God loves to create and God loves what God creates. And that's the foundation, really, of my faith. But we know that there are different interpretations of religious philosophies. Yeah. And that even within religions there are disputes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that often in history those disputes have led to the most horrendous mm. degree of violence. Mm. So none of this is easy, is it? No, it's not easy. Do you recognise... You, I would imagine that you would argue that religion has been a force for good, but there are those who would argue the reverse and say yeah. that it's actually been an extremely divisive yeah. force. And, and today it remains a very divisive force and that there are malignant religious philosophies mm-hmm. that, are, that are poisoning the world. Yeah. Well, how do you react to that? I guess I would react by saying religion is a human construct. So religion is something, it doesn't mean to say it's devoid of God, but religion has come about as a way of human beings trying to make sense of the world uh, and of who we are and why we're here and all those things that I I mentioned just a minute minute ago. And I, I guess because God is God and therefore beyond our understanding, that means that all we have to go on really is our experience and the experience of our forebears to help shape our understanding. And, and human experience will take people in different directions. And the, the faiths that we have in the world will have different kind of flavours to them, quite strongly different flavours uh, to them, because of the history and the culture of the people that live there and their experience. So I think we always have to remember that we've never got all the answers. Whatever our faiths point us to... It's never the ultimate, because we will never understand entirely. I agree entirely, of course, that religion can be used as a force for bad. And I think when that happens, it's when people put themselves above God. People think they know what the answers are, what the right ways of living are, uh, what we should believe, in fact. When actually, if you look around the world, there's a multiplicity of beliefs, even within, as you say, that the individual face themselves. I think I would say, at their best, there is an awful lot of congruence between the different faiths, and particularly between the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. There's a lot in common a lot about respect for one another, a lot about mutual tolerance, a lot about living in harmony. Um, and I think that's what I would urge uh, uh, us all to aspire to. 
the very best. You look at any human institution and there are, there are good things about them and bad things about them. They can be forces for good or forces for evil. Uh, I would say religion at its boldest is, uh, is no different. But at its best, I think it can be a tremendous force for good. Let's go back from the general to the specific. Mm -hmm. So you decide that you've uh, got a calling to take it into the church uh, as a cleric. How did you go about that? Well, there's a process that you go through. It's more or less the same now as it was when I went for ordination. You talk to your parish priest, and then if, if they can see that sense of call, because it's not a call isn't just about what you feel yourself. It's not a, a good idea that people have within themselves. Um, the sense of call has to be tested by the church, so other people uh, need to be able to recognise that that is authentic. So you talk to your parish priest, and there's a number of what we call vocations officers, so people who then take you on the next step, explore with you your, your faith, your understanding, your journey, your reasons why you feel that this is a, a, a call to the church. And then once you've gone through that process, which can take a year to even three years, once you've gone through the series of, of, of people and everybody's content that um, this is something to be explored, you go to a, what's called a bishop's advisory panel now, and that's where you join 10, 12 other people who feel that same sense of call. And you have quite rigorous and robust interviews uh, around uh, education, around theology, around pastoral care and your own, your own spirituality. Lots of reports are written and there's a recommendation to the bishop. And if it's a yes, then you go for training at one of the theological colleges in England or if here in Church in Wales, uh, St Paddan's, which is based here in Cardiff, and you, you train, you do the training. And that's what happened to me. What happened afterwards? What happened afterwards? I, well, I went to uh, Westcott House in Cambridge. I was there for three years. And in that time, I felt a very strong sense of call to the north of England. And the reason for that was because I had a pretty love-hate relationship with the church, actually, right from being a student, right through theological college. And my sense was that God was to be found outside the church as much as inside the church, and that the church was, let's say, of a particular character. So it tends, even now I would say, to draw uh, more middle-class people into its fold. And I felt the gospel was, is very challenging about the church reaching people on the margins, those who are disaffected, those who are homeless, the poor, those who society doesn't want or isn't interested in and and that's what I wanted to do I wanted to be in a context where there was some real poverty and deprivation and hardship and live out what I believed the church was about in those kinds of contexts so I wanted to go north I wanted to go to Liverpool first and that's because I'd done a couple of placements in Liverpool and I liked Liverpool but at the time Women weren't allowed to be ordained to the priesthood and when I was due to leave college, Liverpool weren't taking any more women deacons. Uh, Manchester was, they were taking two, so, uh, so I went to Manchester and stayed there for 30 years. 30 years? Yeah, in different parts of Manchester. Remind me when it was possible to be ordained as a priest as well. Uh, 1994 was the, was the first batch. So you must have been... I was one of the there. first, yeah. Yeah, and great. what was your sense at the time? What, 
You, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that you were in some sort of conflict with, with the church. I mean, partly that was to do, no doubt, with the fact that you didn't think that they were giving enough attention to marginalised people. Mm. But did you also have a sense of frustration about the fact that uh, women were not about to be ordained? Yes, there was frustration and there was hurt, actually. And I know some of my colleagues were, were very angry. I remember being told myself that I couldn't possibly have a, a call to the priesthood because the church didn't allow it, as if that was a, you know, a watertight argument. But I think when, when you have that sense of call, it doesn't go away and it won't go away. And we were left waiting. I mean, I was fortunate. I was only waiting five years. Some of my colleagues have been waiting 10, 15 years for their, for their sense of call to the priesthood to be recognised. Mm. So, yes, frustration. And, of course, there were quite heated debates, both at national and local level, around whether this was the right way for the church to go. So, of course, uh, we were involved in those and came up against uh, people who had very strong views against the ordination of women at all. And uh, we had to learn to, to negotiate those. And we did that in different ways, I think, one of the ways to come alongside people who violently disagree with you is, is to love them, actually, and to get to know them and to start conversations and so that you can each explain to one another why you hold the views you do. And that's what I did in my curacy. I was lucky. There were, there were only a few people who were opposed, but it was deeply hurtful because um, at the communion services on a Sunday morning, even though I hadn't presided at, at the Eucharist, at the communion. I was just administering the chalice, the wine. There, there were people who would definitely swap to the other side of, of the rail so that they didn't have to be administered the wine by me. That was deeply hurtful. And there were a lot of really unkind and unpleasant things said on both sides until the day when the General Synod eventually decided that this was the way the church was, should go. And then there was great re rejoicing. And it was a wonderful day. After that decision was taken, yeah. did you get a sense that things settled down a bit? or No, uh, they no, got worse. <laughs> I'm afraid they got worse. It was a, a great rejoicing for us. And certainly when the first women were ordained to the priesthood and, and we were able to preside at communion services for the first time, it was, it was unbelievably joyful. And a huge sense of support as well from a, a vast range of people. But, of course, those who were opposed to, to this particular development, who felt that the church had made a terrible mistake, started campaigning, I guess, for the decision to be revoked, started coming together and trying to make sense of how they fitted within the Church of England, if indeed they did, now that there were women priests. And you'll probably know that a lot left uh, a lot of priests went to the Roman Catholic Church over this very issue. They were given dispensation. They were allowed to remain married, weren't they? They were allowed to re remain married, yes. And, and some of them are still there. A lot have retired, of course. Some of them came back. The Roman Catholic Church wasn't what they thought it was, and so they came back. Some of them changed their minds. A lot didn't, and there are still uh, significant numbers of people who uh, cannot accept the ordination of women, or the, um, the priestly ministry that, that women offer, like myself. And that's something that we, we have to live with as generously 
and as lovingly as possible. In terms of the reaction of ordinary members of the congregation, Hmm. how would you say that went? In my own congregation, nothing but joy. I had moved post by then, I had moved from my curacy to be chaplain to the Bolton Colleges of Further and Higher Education. I was based at the Town Centre Church in Bolton, and there was overwhelming joy. I don't think there was anybody in that congregation who didn't rejoice alongside me on that occasion. I know for others it was it was a bit different. Of course, in your case, uh, Cherry, and in the case of uh, other women priests, mm. there's an extra element because you're gay. Yes. To what extent... Has that caused a problem, do you think, for the church? Well, (laughs) I have to confess that uh, I hid it for a long, long time, as a lot of gay clergy do, and as a lot of people sitting in the pews do. And I hid it out of fear. It was a very fearful place to be. And it felt also quite disingenuous. I felt as though I was being forced to hide a substantial part of who I am, for fear of being thrown out of the church, for fear of ending up on the front page of the local newspaper, uh, a fear of losing friends. So, like a lot of gay people, even today, I have to say, I hid it. And um, I don't think I was ever dishonest. I don't think I ever denied it, because I was never asked the outright question. But I worked very hard to hide it and even when um, I set up with my present partner over 20 years ago uh, we worked very hard to not live a lie but not to name it and I think that was for very good reason because I think I've seen friends of mine who are gay even whether even if they've not got a partner who have been courageous enough to come out um, have been very, very hurt by the people who thought they could rely on for support. So it's it's a very difficult place to be. And although here in the Church of Wales uh, they've come to a, a healthier position, I would say, than the Church of England is in, there are still people in Wales who and in our churches who would be frightened to admit that they were gay. And I think that's hugely sad and it's one of the things that I want to change. Now recently when you took up your appointment Mm. the veteran gay rights campaigner Peter Tatchell had Mm. a bit of a go at you Mm -hmm. Uh, and he had a bit of a go at you because of some comments that you'd made in a BBC interview in which he was interpreting what you'd said as meaning that you weren't prepared to campaign for it. He actually went as far can sometimes use quite colourful language, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm. Um, he went as far as calling you a selfish hypocrite, saying yeah. that you weren't prepared to campaign for the rights of gay clerics or uh, gay members of the congregation or whatever. Mm. And yet you had benefited mm. from campaigns that others had done uh, in that direction in the past. Yeah. Do you think he was being fair or unfair towards you? I think he misunderstood what I'd said, for a start. He interpreted what I said, I think, as being opposed to gay marriage. That's not what I said. I am very happy to do all I can to support lesbian and gay transgender people in our churches and in our society. 
Uh, I believe that just by simply being here as an out gay person with a partner, and my partner is accompanying me on, on some of my visits, and we've had nothing but welcome from everybody, I think that is probably doing as much, if not more, than I would achieve if I were to be an open campaigner on the subject. I'm not a campaigner by nature, in that sense, in the sense that I think Peter Tatchell would, would understand it. With placards, etc. Uh, with placards, etc. That's not part of my nature, and I think it's really important that we are true to who we are and that we are authentic, because if we aren't authentic to who we are, people very quickly see through that. I am here as a, as a gay bishop with a partner. I absolutely understand that there have been a lot of campaigners in the past who have been terribly hurt and damaged, who have lost their jobs, who have been on the, on the end of really stinging criticism, and, and I honour and respect that. I am not one of those people. I believe that I can do as much, if not more, simply by supporting, uh, being who I am for a start, being open about my relationship, which I wasn't able to do in England, so it feels a much healthier place for me to be, um, but also to make it very clear that um, I will support to my very utmost those who either are struggling with their sense of, sense of sexuality or who have come to a mind about who they are and who people still find difficult to accept. Will you argue within the church in Wales for the right of people who are gay to get married in church? I'll tell you what I will do. I will certainly speak up very boldly about the right of people in uh, civil partnerships to have services of blessing. Uh, I think it's a nonsense that we can't do that. We, we bless almost everything else. Pets, uh, nuclear bombs, ships, you know. Why on earth can't the church bring itself to bless two people who have committed to a, a loving relationship for life, whether they're heterosexual or, or, or homosexual? I think marriage is, is more difficult, and this might be coloured by my own feelings on on this, and that is... My partner and I feel no need to get married. We feel that we've married each other. We don't need the church or the state or anybody else to, to confirm that. And we've undertaken a civil partnership. I think even if it was possible for uh, same-sex couples to get married, that's not a road we would go down. So I guess that, that colours my views on the matter. I do understand that there are people who would like to get married, and I think we do have some work as a church to do on what marriage means, what the doctrine of marriage is, because if you look at the history, it's a very changing picture. We've not always thought of marriage as we do now. So I am open to it, but as I said, I'm, I'm not going to campaign for it, but I will speak out very strongly in favour of uh, same-sex couples having the right to be, uh, have a service of blessing, absolutely. The other issue, of course, relating to you mm. is the fact that you're now a minister or you're a bishop mm. in the church in Wales and you're not from Wales. There are some people who don't like that, mm -hmm. 
I don't know whether they've made that clear to you or whether they just do it behind your back, but uh, there are some people who take the view, as they did when the present uh, Bishop of Llandaff was appointed, mm-hmm. that got these uh, these women coming in from England, yep. and not necessarily because you're a woman, but yeah. somebody coming in from England, yeah. taking these bishoprics yeah. without any previous connection with Wales. Do you, in yes. fact, have any previous connection with Wales? I had an uncle who was born on Anglesey, uh, who married my mum's sister, and my spiritual home is uh, St Bino's, St Bino's uh, in North Wales, which I visited regularly for retreats. So I know North Wales better, but I have I don't have any connection with South Wales. No. What do you think of that argument then that um, bishops from Wales or bishops uh, in the church in Wales ought to ought to be from Wales? Do you think that's restrictive and unnecessarily so? I think I would point people to the process by which I was elected. For those of your listeners who who don't uh, know that process, when a a bishop's post becomes vacant, each diocese in Wales, that's six dioceses, elect six people from within their diocese. And this is an election, three clergy and three laity, to form an electoral college. And the diocese that is vacant, which of course in my case was Monmouth, has 12 people on the Electoral College. So add the five remaining bishops to that, and you get 47 people forming an Electoral College. And that college meets over three days to discuss any names whatsoever that any one of those 47 people would like to put forward as a possible candidate. And those people are uh, talked about and discussed and People who know them will say whatever they want to say about them. And over a period of three days, at the end of each day, an election takes place. Uh, And if somebody gets a two-thirds majority, then that person is deemed to be the person God's calling to the post. If nobody gets a two-thirds majority, then they start again the next day. On the third day of the Electoral College meeting, back in September... Uh, I was voted in by a two-thirds majority as uh, the person that uh, should be the next Bishop of Monmouth. I had nothing to do with it other than to say yes to my name going forward. And I believe that those people took their role very seriously, obviously, and that this was where the Spirit of God was, was leading people to vote. I understand people who feel that uh, I should be Welsh. I do understand that. But the church in Wales is a, is a broad church, and I think I have experiences and uh, and insights to bring to the church. And I I want to learn some Welsh. I think that's really important. I will do my best to serve the people of Wales, whether they think I should be Welsh or not. Believing very strongly, because I wouldn't be here if I didn't, believing very strongly that this is where God wants me to be. Have you taken any advice from one of your distinguished predecessors, Rowan Williams? Rowan has written uh, a beautiful email to me, offering his uh, congratulations and support. There's another retired bishop who works in Monmouth, uh, Dominic Walker, who's also been very generous. And uh, I've not met them yet, but they have uh, opened the door to a meeting whenever I should want it. And I may well take them up on that at some point. And what's your perception of the diocese? I think it's a wonderful place to be. I think the... The the scenery is absolutely stunning. 
I think everybody I have met, and I appreciate that might be a, a select minority at the moment, but everybody I have met has been friendly, warm and welcoming. And I have to say, I thought the northwest of England was a friendly place to be. But both Wendy and I, my partner, have been absolutely overwhelmed by the friendliness of the Welsh people, not just in the church, but in the streets, on the trains. You know, there's a, there's a real natural warmth, it seems, to, to the Welsh people, and uh, that's a great thing to be part of. Bishop Cherry Van, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.